I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We are embarking on an exciting study here within the study of Mark of our Lord's parables. The teaching of Christ, Mark records two extended sections of our Lord's teaching and here in chapter 4 and also in chapter 13. And this morning we're going to uh, overview uh, some of these, the, these parables and consider uh, how we approach the parables. And then in the next weeks we'll look at each of these parables individually and be instructed by our Lord Himself uh, from, from the pages of Scripture. But to acquaint us with our Lord's teaching, we're going to take the time this morning to read uh, the first 34 verses here of Mark 4 so we can see the whole flow of what Mark has recorded for us as Jesus teaches by the sea and then actually is teaching from a boat in the sea. So we'll read beginning in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Hear what our Lord teaches as He is in Galilee. Again, He began to teach beside the sea, And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are ones sown among the thorns. 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is the lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade and then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which... When sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all, than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, what is happening in this passage? I'll summarize it with a single sentence that captures what Jesus is doing. Jesus is teaching the Word. He is teaching the Word with parables to a large crowd. And we see this very explicitly stated in Mark's record. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And then in verse 2, He was teaching them many things and parables, and in His teaching, He said to them, and it goes on to record the parables. And this is consistent with what Jesus has already established is His primary work. He's here to preach and to declare and to teach the kingdom of God. We've seen this repeatedly up to this point. And here Mark is giving us a sample of Christ's actual teaching, what He taught, how He declared the kingdom of God, how He declared the gospel and called people to repent and to believe the gospel. So he is teaching, we see that explicitly stated in verses 1 and 2, he's teaching the Word. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, 
Mark tells us again explicitly with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. In other words, we're given, we're given a key to understand what these parables are. They, are. they are the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus is taking the Scripture, taking the truth about Himself and putting it into parables, but in so doing, He's preaching and teaching the Word to them. He's teaching the Word, and He's doing it, we've seen it a couple of times, He's doing it with parables, with parables. Again, verse 2, He was teaching to them many things in parables. And again, at the end of the passage in verse 33, with many such parables, He spoke the Word to them. And so if you were going to hear Jesus in the first century, this is what you would have heard. You would have heard Jesus speaking in parables to the crowd. And we're going to talk a little bit uh, as we move through the message this morning about what parables are and why Jesus taught this way. But what ultimately is the content of this teaching? It's the Word. It's the Word. But, but I want to go a little bit, drill a little bit deeper and, and put it into the context that Mark set for us as he introduced Jesus' ministry. So if you go back to chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, when Mark summarized Jesus' ministry, and th- these verses are so important to uh, keep before us as we study the life of Christ so that we understand his priority, so we understand what he was doing in his interactions and his teaching with people. Mark tells us, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is a proclamation of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of God. And, and we see that in chapter 4, in verse 11, Jesus, when those who are around him with the twelve come to him, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And then he explains the parable. And then in verse 26, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, and He's doing so, Mark told us early on, He's doing so as a proclamation of the gospel, calling people to repent and believe the gospel. This is what is taking place in these parables. And as we think about Mark recording two major sections of Jesus' teaching, in chapter 4, Mark is laying out Jesus' teaching about the cultivation of the kingdom of God. And in chapter 13, which eventually we'll get to, Jesus teaches about the culmination of the kingdom of God. Now, 
Should this matter to you? Should these words that a man spoke from a boat on the Sea of Galilee to fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors and people who are sick and ill and people with family problems and financial problems and and political turmoil, should these words matter to you? We're told that a large crowd gathered. A large crowd gathered. So these are people from all walks of life. And if you, again, had come to hear Jesus that day, this, this is what you have, would have heard. Because people don't change. And what, what Jesus spoke over 2,000 years ago is what we need to hear today. And, and we can make an objection. Well, these, these don't seem very practical. I mean, my life right now, you don't understand the, the struggles that I'm facing, the, the pressures right now. I, I need practical guidance. But remember, this is about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus spoke to people who were anxious about food, about clothing, about the things of this world, what did Jesus say to them? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus directs you, no matter what, where you are, no matter what you are dealing with, Jesus directs you today by His words to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The most practical thing that you can do in the midst of the pressing cares of the world is to subject your thoughts to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning the kingdom of God. Why is that? Well, this is the king that we're awaiting if we're citizens of the kingdom of God, is it not? If we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 that as citizens of heaven, we are eagerly awaiting our king. And these are the words of our king while he came, when he came. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 20, 28 We're told that Jesus, the one who came the first time to deal with sin, is coming again for the fullness of salvation to save those who eagerly await Him. And so as citizens of the kingdom, with the certainty of the the culmination of the kingdom to come, the most important thing we can do is give our attention to the words of the king, to the words of the coming king. These words and the truth that Jesus places in these parables, the truth of the word, the truth of the kingdom of God, these are foundational to true discipleship. How you respond to Christ, how you respond to the truth in this chapter, it's foundational. It, it, it informs you of how you're responding to Christ Himself. And yes, the parables require us to think, kind of like what uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 2 think over the things that I say. 
how much more should we think over the things that our Lord said in these parables? So today, as we consider the parables in an overview and, and, and set out some considerations for us approaching this chapter, our theme for this morning is very simply, listen to Christ. As we come to Mark chapter 4, listen to Christ, because the kingdom of God will come. Listen to Christ, because the kingdom of God will come, and it's all its fullness. We say, well, what is the kingdom of God? And I like John MacArthur's definition of it. It's very simple. And it, and it brings in so many aspects of it in a simple statement. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, whether internally within the hearts of humans or externally on the earth. And right now, the kingdom of God is established in the hearts of those who turn to Christ in repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, who repent and believe the gospel. Those who are in Christ, in them, the kingdom of God is established. But one day, one day, the kingdom of God will be established on this earth. The king is coming back. And ultimately, all things will be reconciled in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. So listen to Christ, because the kingdom of God will come. We're going to look at four considerations this morning, again, in preparation for the weeks ahead as we look at these parables, four considerations as we study these parables of Christ. Those considerations are that we need to consider Christ. Christ is central to understanding these parables. We need to consider our condition, consider God's condescension, His bowing, bending down to our weak condition, and consider the culmination We listen to Christ because the kingdom of God is coming. And so we consider Christ, we consider our condition, we consider God's condescension to us, and we consider the culmination. So first of all, let's consider Christ. Let's put our Lord and Savior at front and center. He is the preeminent one. It's important to recognize that as we come to parables, even though at face value at first reading, we, there, there's a lot of questions that come to our minds, and there should be. But parables ultimately are not, not opportunities for satisfying idle curiosity. Right? Our goal as we come to these parables is not simply to have our curiosity satisfied, I believe it was Thomas Brooks in speaking of of the distraction that curiosity could be concerning the things of God, the mysterious things of God, and, and sometimes the difficult things of Scripture. Curiosity on its own, he called the drunkenness of the soul. So we need to guard against that, the tendency as we ask the questions and seek the meaning to to just find the answers for idle curiosity. It's, it's about Christ. Christ is central. 
And as we see in Jesus' explanation, when those that are around him come to him, he says to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And, and there's a distinction taking place here between those who are with Christ and those who are not. It's in the presence of Christ, it's in fellowship with Jesus that the parables disclose Christ's intent concerning the kingdom of God, what he's teaching about the kingdom of God. One commentator captures this in this statement. He says, only in fellowship with Jesus do parables disclose the kingdom of God. And that's what we're after. So what should we consider about Christ as we come into these parables? Well, we consider the weakness of Christ in the sense of his humanity. Here is Jesus, God in flesh. And we're told in verse 1 that a large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and, and sat in it on the sea. Here's Jesus. We're told in, in Isaiah 53 that, that he wasn't uh, a, a rock star looking of a person. He was a man that drew no notice on what he looked like. And there are these crowds that are gathering around, and, and some people describe or project that, that this is taking place in a natural amphitheater on a bay in the Sea of Galilee where there's slopes coming down uh, to the water. And there are probably thousands of people here. And to make his voice be heard, he moves out into a boat and the water becomes a sounding board where probably thousands of people can hear him effortlessly as, as he speaks. But, but remember, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the one before whom all nations will bow one day. His voice is like a trumpet that the whole world will one day bow before. Yet here he is in the flesh, and he gets into a boat. And he goes out on the sea so that the sea that he created, that he upholds with the word of his power, becomes the means by which the people hear his word as he speaks to them. But we also see the willingness of Christ. We're told back in chapter 3 that the crowds, the intensity of the crowds was so great in, in chapter 3 verse 20 that he and his disciples could not even eat. Jesus is constantly with the crowds and with the crowds and teaching people. And, and as his popularity is growing in Galilee, there are constantly people with him. And yet, he is willing to teach, to keep on teaching, to keep on laying before them the kingdom of God. And ultimately, that willingness to teach is a willingness to do the will of his Father that he testifies to repeatedly, specifically in John's gospel. Here is Christ in the weakness of his humanity, in the weakness of his flesh, yet willing to pour himself out as he teaches those who are coming to him, as he teaches the desperate and the destitute, the people who are seeking relief and are seeking the truth and are seeking the kingdom 
but most of all, He is willing to do the will of His Father. We also see the wisdom of Christ. The wisdom of Christ. He teaches in parables. What are parables? Well, parables, in, their, in the simplest definition, parables uh, simply set one thing besides something else for the sake of clarity. Let me give you a, a simple example. The ant and the elephant. Immediately you have a picture of something extremely large and something extremely small. And sometimes that's set beside the, the reality, the truth of how great God is and yet how small we are. It's an insufficient example. It's an insufficient illustration and probably more of an illustration technically than a parable because still an ant and an elephant are in the same category of created beings. But it makes the point of the grandeur of how immense God is and yet how small we are. Parables, in a more of a story form, they set one thing beside another. And Jesus does this skillfully. And, and the outcome of Jesus' teaching is multifaceted. As Jesus teaches the parables, they clarify, they conceal, and they comfort. All in one parable. And Jesus says as much again in verse 11 when He's giving the explanation that, that to those with Christ, it's been given to know the secret of the kingdom but for those outside, everything is in parables. So in, in the use of these, of these common everyday occurrences, Jesus is wisely instructing His disciples. He is wisely extending mercy to those who are refusing to believe by concealing some of the elements of the truth of the kingdom that they would otherwise reject. This, this wisdom is remarkable and the simplicity of the stories of the parables that Jesus is setting forth as He places spiritual truth in a familiar house. Now, it's common that, that people will say, well, parables are, are meant to conceal, but I think it's just important to recognize it's not just to conceal. We already came across Jesus' use of parables in chapter 3, when, when the scribes came down from Jerusalem and accused him of doing works in the name of the devil and with the power of the devil, he, he addressed them in parables. And if you turn to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and one of the other few appearances of parables in Mark. Jesus gives the parable of the tenants, but I want to point your attention to verse 12, Mark 12, 12. When Jesus told that parable, Mark records that they were seeking to arrest Him, speaking of the religious leaders, 
but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left and went away. Right? So sometimes parables are to conceal. Sometimes parables are actually a catalyst to move forward the purposes of God, which is what takes place in chapter 12. Right? It becomes a catalyst that, that enrages the religious leaders, ultimately leading to the crucifixion of Christ. But Christ is perfect in His wisdom. And so as He sets forth these parables, we see the wisdom of Christ. And overlapping with that, note that we are looking at the words of Christ. And these are simple and clear things, but it's easy to overlook. We are familiar with these parables. We are familiar with these sections of Scripture, but these are the words of Christ. These are the perfectly inspired, perfectly retained words of our Lord and Savior while He was here on earth. These are precious, wonderful words from Christ Himself, again, issued in in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. They're the culmination, the central part of Scripture. Christ is the central, the central theme of all of Scripture. And these are His very words. There's one other aspect to consider concerning Christ, and that is His worthiness. His worthiness. We are looking at the Christ who is sitting on the sea, teaching. It's actually interesting how Mark states what is happening while Jesus is on the sea when it says he got into a boat in verse 1 and sat in it on the sea. The, the original wording is, is, is something more like he sat in the sea. It's a bit awkward. But it's fascinating because often sometimes those awkward wording can, can have a, a significance behind it because when we get through the parables, when we get through the parables, what's the next thing that we see in Mark's account? Well, at the end of chapter 4 and verses 35 through 41, we have an account of Jesus calming the sea. So at the beginning of chapter 4, here's the Son of God on the sea, and yes, in a boat. At the end of chapter 4, after He's discipled with His words and teaching parables, at the end of chapter 4, we find Jesus discipling in the crucible of a life-threatening storm, and there He is on the sea again, asleep, and then with a word, He quiets the sea This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ who is worthy of worship. This is Jesus Christ who is worthy for you to bow your ear to and to bow your heart to. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Master of the sea. Whether it's calm or raging, Christ is worthy. And so we must have Christ 
central as we think of the, the teaching, the parables that Christ gives to us. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This is the Lord. Listen to Him. Well, we first consider Christ, but then let's also consider our condition. Consider your condition. What, what is your condition that, that we can even see here in the passage? Well, again, just noting that a large crowd gathered about Him, and, and as we would extend that description through the Gospels and see the variety of people that the Gospels describe who come to Jesus. The people who come are people who are desperate. They're sick. They don't know where to turn. They're confused. Even His disciples are confused. They're hopeless in many cases. This is a time of Great political turmoil. Israel's looking for a king. They're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a deliverer. They're looking for someone to deliver them from from Rome. People are desperate and they're lost. They're in their sins and they need a Savior. And over and over, Jesus has already made it clear He came, He came to deal with sin. He came to extend forgiveness to sinners. Back in chapter 2, when the religious leaders became upset about His association with tax collectors and sinners, what did Jesus say in verse 17? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." This is a call from Christ to sinners. And the only ones who plug their ears and try to scream over the voice of Christ are those who are self-righteous in their own eyes. And and Jesus did not come to save the self-righteous in the sense that that, that they are rejecting Him. No, He he didn't come to endorse Christ self-righteous people. He came to deliver sinners. We're sinful. We need the words of Christ. We need delivered from our sins. We need to be confronted with the reign of Christ in the kingdom of God. We need to be confronted with these eternal realities. Our souls need to, need to wrestle with the reality that in and of ourselves, there is no salvation. There is salvation only in one, in Jesus Christ. We're lost. We need forgiveness. And we're slow to hear and slow to believe. Jesus repeatedly in the first couple of parables urges those listening to hear. Look look at how He starts in verse 3. Listen! Listen! And at the end of the first parable, again in verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus repeats this statement in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when He he 
declares to the churches their need to turn away from sin and, and their need to cling to him for comfort. This is a repeated theme from the words of Jesus Christ. Listen, hear my words, take comfort in my words. Why does he keep repeating it? Because we don't. We're slow to hear. And we need reminded to give attention, that we need to give attention to the Word of God. We also see that appeal in verses 23 and 24, which are the central elements of that passage where we have two parables combined. Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. We're lost. We need God's forgiveness. We need the words of Christ. We're slow to hear and slow to believe the darkness and the distractions of of our own minds, of our own wicked hearts cloud our perception. Right? The worst thing that you can ever do is follow your heart. You'll just become more confused. Don't follow your heart. Follow the words of Christ. And so ultimately, we are dependent, we are completely dependent on the grace of God. Look again at verse 11. Jesus said, To them, to you has been given, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And as we study these parables, and the Lord gives understanding in the fullness of fellowship with Christ as He gives us understanding about what He is saying. We need to come back over and over to that statement of our Lord, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And any understanding that we glean and have from from these words of Christ, the only reason we're understanding, the only reason we can grasp the truth that, that Jesus proclaims is because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so as the Spirit of God opens our minds to receive the Word of God, we rejoice in the grace of God. And with those things in mind concerning our condition, concerning the operation of grace and, and the reality of our fleshly slowness to hear and to believe, Turn with me to James chapter 1, where we find an exhortation from the Lord's brother about hearing. James chapter 1, in verse 18, James writes, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so, continuing that thought with the fact we've been brought forth by the word of truth, so the word of truth being central, now look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, that's good general advice, right? It's better to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. But James isn't giving us just good advice. 
He's giving instruction specifically concerning the word of truth. Concerning the word of truth, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Verse 21, therefore put away all flesh, all filthiness and, and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You see what James is dealing with here? He's dealing with our slowness to hear and, and he's giving us just explicit instruction. Be quick to hear. And what is it that would slow our hearing? What is it that would slow our belief in the words of Christ? Well, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We have deceitful hearts. And then look at verse 26. James repeats this in multiple times in this chapter. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. You see what's happening here? Back in verse 19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Be slow to talk about, to talk about, what you believe, what you know, and be quick to hear it explained. Be quick to receive it. Be quick to assimilate it. Because an unbridled tongue is the evidence of a heart that's deceived. This is our condition. This is why it's repeated over and over and over and over in Scripture. And, and just to buttress that fact, look at the next book, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Toward the end of the passage, Peter, after describing our glorious salvation in Christ, Peter says in verse 22, "...having purified your souls with obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love..." Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. What's the imperishable seed? It's the Word of God. It's what gave you life. It's what regenerated your soul as the Word came forth and the Spirit of God washed you, cleansed you. Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We are slow to hear. We're slow to believe. And so Christ says, listen, listen. 
And where Peter goes in chapter 2 is as, as you set aside those things and as you keep growing in the Word and keep hearing the Word, you know what will happen? You're just going to keep on going back to Christ. You're going to keep on going back to the foundation of your salvation. You're going to keep running to the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider your condition. We've considered Christ. We consider our condition, our need to hear, our need for God's grace as we look at these words, as we look at these parables so that we can hear, so that we can understand. Let's next consider God's condescension. All right, there's two ways to define condescension. One is in a negative way, you know, someone is condescending. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's condescension and His mercy to us in the sense of His voluntary descent from His high rank and dignity and relations to inferiors. That's us. That's the other definition that good old Merriam-Webster gives to us. Consider God's condescension. When we consider Christ and we consider ourselves, we find that there is a great chasm. And these parables reveal the grace and mercy that our Heavenly Father extends to people. He extends grace in teaching us of the kingdom of God from Christ. He extends mercy even in judgment and obscuring and concealing truths to those who have hardened themselves against the gospel. But we find some just very simple and precious truths within this passage. And they, they, there's nothing new here. Right? This is just some simple truth that reminds us of God's love to us in Jesus Christ. God sent His Son. The reason that we have these parables is because God sent His Son. He loved the world so much that He sent His Son. And so Jesus is here preaching and teaching the, 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 the parables, preaching the kingdom of God because God sent His Son. Our loving Heavenly Father sent His Son. God also speaks through His Son. God speaks through His Son. In chapter 9, at the Transfiguration, on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember the Lord is displayed in His glory and a voice comes from heaven. And what does that voice say? This is my Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. The words of Christ are words of God. Jesus came to exposit the Father, John chapter 1. Jesus came as the exact image of God, Hebrews chapter 1. And so all that Jesus said, says, are the very words of God, sometimes to clarify and comfort, sometimes to obscure in mercy. Sometimes those parables are issued to, to instigate a reaction like we saw in chapter 12. But ultimately, the words of Christ, what Christ said, they always accomplish God's will. God is speaking through His Son, and God's Word will not return void. It will indeed accomplish everything that God sends it to do. 
It's the perfect record of God's Word in Christ as God speaks through His Son. But ultimately, God saves through His Son. God saves through His Son. And receiving the Word declared by Christ by faith, receiving the Word declared by Christ by faith is to enter the kingdom of God. To hold fast to the words of Christ. To believe in the Christ who spoke those words. And and what we have filled out for us in the completed revelation of Scripture. That this is the Christ who went to the cross. This is the Christ to whom you must turn for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the Christ who rose from the dead. Who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Who makes intercessions for intercession for his people. This is the Christ you must turn to. Believe his words. Believe the gospel. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Within that reality that God saves through his son, that we must receive the word declared by Christ, we need to understand that each parable carries a clear truth to which you must respond. Right? These, are not, these are not academic and intellectual exercises. These are parables of truth about the kingdom of God calling people to repent and believe the gospel. And you must respond. This is the call of Christ. Our response to Christ's teaching as the one God sent to save us from our sins is a response to Christ Himself. And it's a response to God the Father. Repent and believe the gospel. What love God has that He would send His only Son to speak His words that we might be saved from our sins. Consider God's condescension And finally, consider the culmination. Consider the culmination. Again, if I haven't made it clear, all of these parables relate to the kingdom of God. And there's a culmination of the kingdom of God. In the last two parables, we see some of this foreshadowed. In verse 29, When Jesus describes the growth of a harvest, He says, But when the grain is ripe at once, He puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will culminate and it will culminate with sudden certainty. You see the suddenness, the, you know, the, the, the harvest is growing, it's growing almost imperceptibly, but then harvest comes, and the sickle is in, and the harvest comes home. It is so easy to become complacent. Peter warns about this kind of complacency in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's so easy to become complacent and just think, you know what, things are going to go on as they always have. No, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will come and it will come with a sudden certainty. 
And that kingdom will be greater than all the kingdoms. The picture of the mustard seed, we have another picture of it, we'll fill out when we get there, of Daniel and Daniel concerning Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar and how his kingdom was the greatest. And we have the exact same picture. And the whole point was how that kingdom was the greatest. The kingdom of God, yeah, it starts small, but it becomes the greatest. The kingdom of God will culminate with sudden certainty and the kingdom of God will be greater than all the kingdoms. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, look at the very end of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews culminates his clarification of the gospel here. He spends 12 chapters clarifying the gospel and then one chapter filling out some of the implications. But as he culminates this clarification, look at verse 25. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, speaking of the Israelites, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews concludes this this section of his clarifying of the gospel by reminding us that as those in Christ, we've received a kingdom that is unshakable. It's stored up in the heavens. And so our responsibility here on earth is to live not for this kingdom, not for this earth, not for the things that can be shaken, but for the reality of the sudden culmination of the kingdom of God, the greatest of all kingdoms, because it can never be shaken. Live for that kingdom. And maybe this afternoon you can spend some time in chapter 13 because he tells us what that looks like. And it's pretty simple, but difficult. Things like be content with what you have. Oh, we live for the kingdom of God. That's the culmination. To give life, as a, to live our life for any other dominating principle than the kingdom of God is to... Live a life for what's going to be shaken. What ultimately will just fall apart. Hebrews 11.16 says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Is that verse talking about you? Have you bowed to the King of Kings? Have you turned to Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Have you repented? The kingdom of God is coming. Listen, listen to Christ because the kingdom of God will come. The fullness of his kingdom is more certain. It's more certain than you waking up tomorrow. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that, but we don't even know. But we do know, we do know the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus' parables, as one commentator said, they're not simply good advice. They're good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you turn to him? Will you believe in him? Will you live for the king? Father, we thank you for your love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've poured your love into our hearts through the Spirit of God. We thank you for the word that we have seen this morning, for the words of Christ. And, O oh Lord, we pray that you would take away the calluses from our hearts, that we would, in humility and love, receive these words, that we would order our lives this week as, as those in Christ, to serve our King in anticipation of His appearance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find church information, Don's complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.